Aristotle observed that the human race lives by art. Uh, it's pretty obvious if you just look around you right now, the, the seats you're sitting in, the building you're in, the clothes you're wearing, the food you had prepared tonight, everything around you is something that's a product of human art. Huh? So it's, it's somewhat obvious. And even though that's an obvious observation, it's no less profound for being obvious. The range and scope of goods possible for the human race so exceeds our physical capacities of our bodies that unlike the other species of animals who are provided with definite tools, organs, sufficient to acquire what they need, their limited goods, man must fashion for himself other tools as a means to the variety of goods possible to human reason. Here's a quote from St. Thomas on that point. There is a difference between the way something is naturally provided for man and for the other animals, both in regard to the body and in regard to the soul. For the other animals, there are provided particular coverings, such as a tough hide or feathers, and other things of this kind, as well as special weapons such as horns and claws and things of this kind. This is because they have fewer ways of acting to which determinate instruments can be ordained. But to man, these things are provided in a general way, inasmuch as they are given to him hands by nature, by which he might prepare for himself various coverings and weapons. As we see, we have our various coverings on right now, right? And this is because the reason of man is so multiform and extends itself to diverse things so that there cannot be sufficiently prepared determinate instruments for him. And it is similar on the part of apprehension, on the part of the soul. Because other animals are endowed with special conceptions necessary for them by a certain natural instinct, just as a lamb which knows that the wolf is its enemy, and things like this. But in place of these things for man, the understanding is naturally endowed with universal principles by which he is able to proceed in all those matters necessary for him. That's taken from the disputed questions on truth. It's question 22, article 7. So art is the knowledge by which reason obtains these goods, fashioning appropriate tools. And in this lecture, I want to focus upon one such art namely logic, and a special tool of that art, namely per se statements, statements which are through themselves, where the predicate belongs to the subject through the subject itself. And as with other tools, in order to understand a tool well and precisely, it's important to grasp its purpose within the larger art. If I wanted to explain to you what a rudder does, it's important to see it in the larger art of navigation and shipbuilding, for example. So I'll first give a brief overview of logic, and then I'll specifically explain the usefulness of per se statements as a kind of privileged tool within the art of logic. And I want you to hold on to these kind of initial concepts. Um, it's really important that the things that you read in Aristotle and St. Thomas they, they have value not only because of the conclusions that they reach, but the principles from which they reason. And, um, and Aristotle and St. Thomas both understood that you need to begin with things that are better known to us. And those initial conceptions of the mind are essential for advancing further on. So for example, if you read St. Thomas's treatise on morals in the Summa Theologiae, he begins by talking about the goodness of a human act in terms of its analogy to the goodness of a natural substance. And the whole discussion that follows is based upon that initial conception of what makes a natural substance good. Well, first it's got to exist, then it's got to have a determinate species, then it's got to have all the right outward accidents, like a horse has to have four legs and the right length and so forth, and then it's got to achieve its end. And then he uses that analogy, and he never departs from the analogy in explaining the goodness and the malice of human acts. And there's no other way to understand the goodness or the badness of human acts except by analogy to those initial conceptions which are better known to us. And logic is the same way. If we let go of thinking about logic as fundamentally a tool, as fundamentally something that's an, a practical kind of knowledge and a tool, 
then we'll lose our understanding, our fundamental understanding of logic. I often say, um, logic did not die in kind of modern education because it suffered the fate of a neglected child. It died because it suffered the fate of a spoiled child. <laughs> what happened with logic was they started treating logic as a science in itself to be known for its own sake, rather than holding on to the fundamental notion of logic as a tool that's supposed to be used and its principal value and worth is in being used for the sake of coming to know truth, huh? especially um, the truth of speculative reason, huh? the good of speculative reason. So it's really important to hold on to that. So the art of logic. Every art is established to procure some good, either to procure it at all or at least more easily. For example, agriculture is for the sake of producing healthy and nutritious food. Architecture is for the sake of making shelter and a suitable living environment to protect you from things like cold. The military art is for the sake of procuring victory over an enemy and so forth. And logic is no different. Logic was established for the sake of pro pro procuring the good of the speculative intellect, and that is truth known for its own sake. That's the good that logic is about getting, somehow procuring that good. This good, truth known for its own sake, is certainly unlike the other goods I mentioned. Food and shelter and victory, they're all bodily goods. They're better known to us, and they're even more necessary for our life than speculative truth. But truth known for its own sake even though it's not a bodily good, is still a good of the soul, and to that extent, even better. But because these goods are less known, someone might even deny that speculative truth is a good for man at all. Why even bother? It seems like a waste of time. I don't have to, I'm preaching the choir here if I'm talking to TAC students, but if I were in a, a modern public university, that would be the first objection, I think, that most of the students would have. It was the objection that, uh, Tom made a, a reference to uh, for my own family. Get a practical education. What good is TAC? Right? Go off and get your engineering degree, for example. Huh? Now, it would take a lecture of its own to establish that speculative truth is really the best good for man. But I will give some signs that I think are pretty obvious indications that speculative truth does contribute to human happiness and is very important. First, given the choice to lose your house or to lose your knowledge, which would you choose? You have to lose everything you know. Just let it go, as opposed to your house, right? Your knowledge seems more intimately bound up with your very person, your very identity. Huh? If you lost your knowledge, it's almost like you lose yourself. Huh? And again, speculative knowledge seems to be a possession which is unique to man alone. Whatever is the good perfected of human nature as such ought to be something that's peculiar to man, perfective of human nature and specific to it. For example, we should not find man's primary good in swimming or eating. That's something common to many species of animals. So, so if truth known for its own sake really is a good for man and perhaps the best good for man, and it's not something always readily accessible and easy to acquire or easy to hold on to, then it's clear that an art is necessary for the sake of acquiring and possessing this good, and that art is logic. We need that art to hold on to, to acquire and to hold on to speculative truth. One corollary from this conclusion is the fact that um, so-called modern symbolic logic really isn't the same art. It doesn't have the same end, right? Symbolic logic doesn't have as its end the procurement or the acquiring of truth. Right? It has something else like consistency and reasoning. It's something like that. But it's not an art in the way that logic is an art. Now, at this point, someone might object. Father, truth is something readily accessible and easy to acquire. It's easy to come to truth, at least the truth necessary for living and even for living well. Many people live good, productive lives without ever taking a course on logic. So what do you say to that? Aristotle agrees to some extent. He quotes the proverb, who will miss a door? 
in support of the opinion that truth is, in a sense, easy for everyone to obtain, to find. Yet while it is, it is easy to grasp some part of the truth, it's difficult, if not impossible, to grasp the whole truth. And while it's easy to grasp realities and causes close to our sensation, it's difficult to know causes and realities far from sensation. It's easy to know the cause of this or that man. You identify his parents, right? That's easy. But if then I ask you the question, what's the cause of man as such? It's a much more difficult question to answer. So the case of truth is much like the case of eyesight. Eyesight works fine as long as things are big enough and close enough. We can see them. As soon as they get far away or very small, our eyes need some tool to help them see, whether it be a telescope to see things far away or a microscope to see things that are very small. So logic is going to be necessary not just to know truth at all, but necessary to know difficult truths well. And even ordinary truths in a scientific way, as we'll see. So far, I've been referring to logic as an art, but it's also correct to call it a tool. For every tool is useful for some good, and what a tool does is it proportions the agent to the thing, the good that it's trying to acquire. For example, a pencil proportions a hand to writing. The hand is capable of moving itself in a way that forms letters, but it doesn't have the ability to leave marks on a paper. The pencil has the ability to leave marks on a paper, but it doesn't have the ability to move itself to form letters. So the pencil proportions the hand to the good of writing. And every tool is like this. It's useful for some good and proportions the agent to that good. But this is precisely what the art of logic does. It proportions reason to the good of perfect knowledge of truth. So logic is both an art and a tool, which is why Aristotle called his treatise on logic the organon, the tool in Greek. Huh? And just as a human body has many parts and activities proper to those parts, for example, the foot for walking, the hand for grasping, the mouth for eating, so also human reason has distinct powers or parts. And it has activities proper to each of those. And just as tools are fashioned for different parts of the body based upon their respective activities, so I need shoes for running if I want to run a long distance or fast, gloves for the hand, straw for the mouth. So also tools are fashioned for the various powers and activities of reason. And there are three principal activities of reason. The first is understanding what a thing is. And this corresponds to the tool of definition I like to call definition the microscope of the mind, right? When I take a name like man, and then I try to understand what man is, I understand it more distinctly. I resolve it into its parts, rational and animal. And now I've seen man more distinctly. I see it, so to speak, through a microscope. I see its parts more um, clearly and distinctly that way. Second, the tool of understanding the true and the false is statement. And then finally, the third act of reason is called reasoning. It's the best known. And to it corresponds the tool of argument or syllogism. I like to call a syllogism a telescope for the mind. Because just as a telescope allows you to see something very far away, so also a syllogism allows you to see a truth that's very far from the sensible things that are immediately apparent to us. Huh? By the way, these three acts of reason enumerated by Aristotle and admitted by the whole tradition are the first three human acts ever recorded. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Some of you guys have recently read Genesis, I think. huh? And in the book of Genesis, you read that Adam, the first thing he does is he names the animals, right? giving them a name, signifying what they are. Then the next thing he does is he makes a statement. right? This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Right? He's naming, he's making a statement using some of the names, the things he named. And the last thing he does is he makes an argument. She shall be called woman because she has been taken from her man. So literally the first three human acts ever recorded, the three acts of reason in order are found in scripture. Huh? Pretty good for a, a nomadic Israelite. Huh? For <laughs> 
All right, the good of reason, namely truth known for its own sake, is going to be found in statements, since only statements signify the true. So why do we need that third act of reason? Why do we need to make syllogisms and arguments if we can just know statements? Because not all truths are equal. Some are more perfective of human reason and human nature than others. Some contribute more to your happiness than others. The statements we know immediately without any argument are very certain, but not very perfective of the human mind. If knowing that the whole is greater than the part were sufficient to make you happy and to perfect man, there would be a lot of happy people out there. <laughs> Everyone knows that, huh? And it does contribute to your happiness to know something like that, but still, it's just not going to get you where your nature needs to go. But as it is, truths like God exists, God is good, the human soul is immortal, they're obviously much more connected to our happiness. But they're in no way known without an argument. They're not anywhere close to self-evident. They're not close to the senses at all. So if our minds are ever going to get anywhere really important for our happiness, we need this other tool of argument to get to these new truths. So the good we're seeking by means of logic isn't just any truth whatsoever, but especially these highest truths, the truths that are most perfective of human reason. And this is what Aristotle sets out to do in his posterior analytics. And that's where those tools called per se statements come in so handy. Per se statements are the building blocks of demonstrations. They're those arguments that get us to those really important truths in such a way that we see those truths as certain and necessary. And so the next part of my lecture will focus on the tool of demonstration and the role that per se statements play in building a demonstration. At the beginning of his posterior analytics, Aristotle lays out the particular kind of good we're seeking. He calls it in Greek episteme, which can be translated roughly as perfect reasoned out knowledge. Here's his own text. We are said to possess knowledge simply, episteme, when we know the cause of a fact as a cause of that fact and no other and the fact cannot be other than it is. In other words, knowledge of the exact cause of a necessary conclusion. That's what he's talking about when he's talking about episteme. It's a conclusion, and it's through its exact and proper cause in such a way that that conclusion is absolutely necessary. We have to see it as completely necessary. And given this good that we're aiming at, Aristotle reasons backwards to the kind of tools we need to fashion in order to get to that kind of knowledge, that episteme, that perfect reasoned out knowledge. Um, when I was a kid, there used to be this commercial on during daytime TV. It said, the hand can break wood, but it can't cut a watermelon. You know, it, was a t it was a commercial for Ginsu knives. You, just, you look at a watermelon and you know your hand is not going to be able to be the right tool for cutting that. You reason backwards and you say, if I want watermelon and I want it the way I like it, I'm going to need something sharp and hard. Right? You reason backwards from the good. And that's exactly what Aristotle is doing. He begins by defining the tool of demonstration as a kind of tool that can get us this episteme, this perfect reason out knowledge. And so demonstration is a syllogism causing perfect reason out knowledge. And you can see this as a definition by final cause. It's the whole purpose of a syllogism. And from a final cause, the final cause, by the way, is the good a thing is for, huh? the purpose of a thing. From understanding what a thing is for, we can reason backwards, usually, to its materials and its form, and sometimes even the agent that, that's used to make it. And to take a simple example, if a knife is for cutting, it's got to be made from a material that's hard, and its form has to be sharp, right? It's fairly simple. You can reason backwards from the purpose to the matter and the form. And just as a basilica must be constructed from the best and most noble materials, so too a demonstration must likewise be constructed from the best and most noble premises. And Aristotle first reasons to six qualities that such premises need to have. They have to be in themselves true, immediate, that is not known through something else, and first. And again, in relation to the conclusion, they have to be better known than the conclusion, causes of the conclusion, and prior to the conclusion. 
And it's straightforward to see that these qualities have to belong to the premises of a demonstration. For example, false premises or premises which are less known than conclusion can't make us know anything, much less make us know anything perfectly. So I need to have true conclusions that are better known. That's pretty obvious. Mediated premises, ones that aren't self-evident, that I need an argument for, they're not going to cause us to know the conclusion with any certitude or clarity needed for perfect knowledge. So these six attributes are required for perfect reasoned out knowledge, and yet they're not sufficient. Recall, the concluded statement in perfect reasoned out knowledge must both be necessary, the fact cannot be other than it is, and it has to be seen as necessary by the one who makes the argument. Now one might happen to get a necessary conclusion out of contingent premises, non-necessary premises. So take the following example. Every circle is wooden. Every wooden thing is, has the same shape. Therefore, every circle has the same shape, right? Perfectly good syllogism, right? My conclusion is absolutely necessary, right? It's true, every circle has the same shape. There's no denying that and no one could ever prove the opposite. And yet my premises in that argument were not the way to see that necessity. It's absolutely and perfectly possible that both those premises could be true. It might be there could be a world in which every circle was wooden. Could also be a world in which every wooden thing had the same shape. Those are all possible realities. But those kinds of contingent, non-necessary premises could never cause us to see the conclusion as necessary. However necessary the conclusion was, those premises couldn't make us see their necessity. And so that's why we need some premises that are able not only to give us necessary conclusions, but conclusions where we can see the necessity of those conclusions through the premises. Here's how Aristotle puts it. Since, however, that of which there is scientific knowledge, simply speaking, cannot be otherwise, that is, is necessary, what is scientifically knowable according to the demonstrative science would be necessary. But the demonstrable is that which we have by having a demonstration. Demonstration, then, is a syllogism from necessary premises. We must grasp, then, from what and what sort demonstrations are. So Aristotle reasons the fact that premises themselves have to be necessary and seen as necessary if we're going to have this perfect reasoned out knowledge of a necessary conclusion. All this is fine and good, but then the question comes up, what do we mean by necessary? How do I know that something's necessary? How would I define necessity? St. Thomas brings up various attempts to account for the necessary in his commentary on the Perihermeneus. Here are his words. Concerning the possible and the necessary, certain men have had diverse opinions. For certain men distinguish them according to what happens, as Diodorus, who said that it is impossible, that is impossible, which will never happen, but that is necessary, which always will be, and that is possible, which sometimes will be and sometimes not. But the Stoics distinguish the possible and the necessary based upon external prohibitions, for they say that the necessary is that which cannot be prevented from being true but they say that the impossible is that which is always prevented from being true. And finally, they say that the possible is what is able to be prevented or not. But both of these distinctions seem to be inadequate. For the first distinction is based upon things which follow upon necessity and possibility. For something is necessary not because it will always be, but rather it always will be because it is necessary. And the same is clear regarding the impossible and the possible. On the other hand, the second distinction assigns a reason which is from external, somewhat accidental things. For the reason why something is necessary is not because it does not have an impediment, but rather, since it is necessary, it's not able to have an impediment. And therefore, others, including Aristotle, better distinguish the necessary and the possible according to the nature of things so that they called that necessary which in its nature is determined only to being, while that is impossible which is determined only to non-being, and that is possible which is not altogether determined to either, whether it be inclined more towards one than to the other, or hold itself equally to either one, which they called the contingent to either one. 
So the premises of a demonstration cannot be accidentally necessary. That is simply because of something extrinsic to the subject and predicate. For example, it's possible for God to unite the soul and body of an animal for eternity by a miracle. So your dog Fido out there, you know, sometimes you get that as a priest, you know, will my dog go to heaven, you know? And I'm very pastoral, I say, if you need your dog to be happy in heaven, your dog will be there. <laughs> That's how I get around the problem. Um, but that would take a miracle, right? It would take a miracle. God would have to unite the soul and body of your little dog Fido there um, by a miracle. And that dog would nonetheless not be necessary in himself, only accidentally through an extrinsic cause. Or it could happen that the subject and predicate happen to be joined in every case. For example, the statement that every man exists after the year 1 million BC. That will happen to be true in every case, but there's nothing intrinsically linked between the subject and the predicate there. That may be a necessary statement in the sense that it will always be true, but not necessary because the predicate and the subject really belong to each other through the subject itself. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for statements where we can see the necessity through the relationship, the intrinsic relationship between the subject and the predicate. Demonstration must give the exact and necessary cause of the predicate belonging to the subject in the conclusion of the demonstration. And in order to fill this condition, fulfill this condition, Aristotle concludes that among other things, that the premises of a demonstration must be known, must be kath auto, he says in the Greek, per se through itself. That is, the predicate must belong to the subject through the subject itself. Here are the words of Aristotle. For the predicate cannot not belong to the subject. Either it belongs simply or one of opposites belongs. So that if it is necessary to affirm or deny, it is necessary also that what are through themselves belong per se. So what does this per se mean? What is, what is per se, what's kath auto? What does through itself mean? Does through itself mean that the statement is known through itself and not through another statement? In other words, does, when we say a statement is per se, do we mean it's self-evident? I don't need another statement to get me there. Huh? I remember when I was a student going through the college, that was what I thought when I was reading through that. I'm like, oh yeah, per se. That means you know the, you know the, the subject belongs to the, the predicate belongs to the subject or vice versa because you don't need an argument for it. It's self-evident. Huh? And I was wrong. That's not what it means. <laughs> does it mean that the predicate belongs to the subject through no intermediate cause? Per se as opposed to per aliud, right? Or does it mean that the predicate belongs to the subject because of what the subject is, rather than because of something outside of what the subject is? The per se as opposed to the per accidens, you would say in Latin. Huh? It primarily means the last in Aristotle, though in some way the first two are also at work for premises of a demonstration. Huh? Here are the words of Aristotle followed by a, a commentary of St. Thomas. The things which are said to be per se in the case of things which are simply knowable scientifically are per se thus, as belonging to the things predicated or being inhered in through themselves and by necessity. And then St. Thomas comments, it is manifest that from principles of this kind, namely per se, a demonstrative syllogism is made, which he proves in this way. Everything which is predicated either is predicated per se or accidentally. And those things which are predicated accidentally are not necessary. Therefore, they're predicated per se. So that's the idea, that the, the predicate belongs to the subject through, this, through what the subject is itself, not through something outside of what the subject is. That's the concept we're trying to get at when we're understanding these per se statements. Huh? Um, if, if you want to take just simple examples, um, look, does white belong to triangle? Right? A simple question, does white belong to triangle? Well, um, white belongs to triangle in some cases, but has nothing to do with what triangle is, right? A triangle is a three-sided figure, right? White doesn't belong to the very what it is. If white belongs to triangle, it belongs to it through something outside of what triangle is. On the other hand, if I say that a triangle is equilateral, or a triangle has interior angles equal to two right angles, 
Now those predicates belong to a triangle precisely because of what the triangle is. Huh? That's why I don't divide triangle into red, white, and blue and get different species, but I divide triangle into equilateral, scalene, and isosceles to get different species because um, those are different ways of being three-sided. Red, white, and blue are not different ways of being three-sided, but equilateral, scalene, and isosceles, those are different ways of being three-sided. Huh? All right, so now we get to per se statements. Aristotle lays out four senses of per se in Book 1, Chapter 4 of the Posterior Analytics. Here's the first sense. Whatever belong in the what it is, as line and triangle and point and line, is per se. For the substance of these is from those, and they belong in the account saying what it is. That's the first sense. Second, per se too are those which belong in the account showing the what it is of the things which belong to them, as straight and curved belong to line, and odd and even to number, and prime and composite and equilateral and oblong. In the one case, line, and in the other case, number, belong to all these in the account saying what it is. And I say per se similarly in each of the other such cases. But whichever ones do not belong in either way are accidents as musical or white in animal. Then a third sense of per se. Moreover, what is not said according to some other underlying I call per se. For example, what is walking is something other than the act of walking, and the white thing other than the color white. But the substance and whatever signifies of this something, not being something else, is only the thing it is. Things which are not according to an underlying then I call per se, but things which are according to an underlying accidents. Finally, a fourth sense. Moreover, in another way per se is what belongs to each thing through itself, while what is not through itself is accidental. For example, if it thunders when one is walking, it is an accident, for it did not thunder through the walking, but this we say just happened. But if something happens through itself, then also per se. For example, if some animal should die when being slaughtered, then it is also according to being slaughtered because it was through being slaughtered, but it does not just happen that the thing being slaughtered dies. So those are the four senses of per se, okay? And let me say something about each of those because Aristotle's Greek is sometimes terse. It's a little bit hard to understand what he's saying there. The first sense of per se, that belongs to statements. And the statements in which the predicate is in the definition of the subject. So the predicate is in the definition of the subject, the what it is of the subject. I'm gonna give additional examples. Man is an animal, per se. Animals in the definition of man. A crow is a bird. Bird is in the definition of crow. Double is a relation. Five is a quantity. Okay, those are all examples of very simple per se statements in that first sense. The predicates in the definition of the subject. And this is by far the easiest sense to see. For if the predicate signifies part of what the subject is, it obviously belongs to the subject through what the subject is, is through the subject itself. What could be more the subject itself than what it is of the subject? Huh? So it's easy to see why per se statements like this are necessary. St. Thomas observes in his commentary that in this case, the pair in per se, the through, right, signifies the mode of formal cause because the parts of a definition are reduced to formal cause. So each of these senses of per se, you're gonna have something, the predicate belonging to the subject through the subject itself. Well, what's the through? Through what kind of cause, right? What mode of cause? So formal cause in this case. The second sense of per se belongs to statements in which the subject is in the definition of the predicate. So it's just a converse, okay? Here are some examples. A number is odd. A line is straight. A body is in motion. A surface is colored. Number is in the definition of odd. Body is in the definition of motion. Surface is in the definition of color, right? If I had to give a a definition of the predicate, I would include the subject. So once again, we've got a whole part relationship between the subject and the predicate. Huh? Not, of course, as signifying what odd or motion or color are, but as indicating their proper subject. Huh? So it's a little bit different than the first case. Um, figure is what triangle is, right? But number isn't what odd is. Number's what odd is in. Does that make sense? So it's part of the definition, but not in the same way as you had in the first sense of per se. 
Odd exists in number and only in number. Straight exists in line and only in line. And once again, the necessity of these statements is easy to see. How could something which is part of the definition not belong necessarily to the thing defined? But notice here that the necessity is not always that one predicate belong or the other belong to the subject, but that either of the two or however many there are. For example, it's not necessary for a number to be odd, but it is necessary that a number be either odd or even. So if you're looking for a necessary statement, which is what Aristotle's really after, you need to have a statement in which a kind of an exhaustive division is given, huh? All the things that are in the subject are named. It's not necessary, for example, for a body to be in motion, but it is necessary that it either be in motion or in rest, okay? Things like that. Are there any cases where the subject is in the definition of the predicate and there's only one predicate which necessarily belongs to the subject? Are there any cases like that where I don't have that either or form and it's necessary? I think so. Here's some examples. A triangle has interior angles equal to two right angles. Triangle is a proper subject of that property of that predicate, huh? and it belongs necessarily. A natural substance has accidents. Right? There's no either or needed. Dimensive quantity has shape. If I have quantity that's extended, it's going to have some shape. Huh? A living body is ensouled. In each of these examples, the single predicate must belong to that subject and only to that subject. So St. Thomas notes that in the, this case, the pair signifies the mode of material cause, since the subject stands as matter to the predicate, which is in the subject. Then the third sense of per se. The third sense of per se belongs to things which exist through themselves, namely substances. Is this a kind of statement? For example, the statement that substance exists, is that what Aristotle is saying? Aristotle's language seems to lead away from this interpretation since he's talking about per se things, not statements anymore. He says, what is not said according to some underlying, he specifically refers to something as not said, huh? which is obviously not a statement. A statement's always going to be said. One thing's going to be said of another in a statement. But he denies that in this case. He says, what is not said. On the other hand, this part of the posterior analytics is about statements, and in particular, the kinds of statements which are necessary. So what is the sense of per se doing here in a list if it's not a kind of per se statement? How's that going to help me with logic if, um, if what I'm trying to get at is conclusions that are necessary, right? So how is this helpful, this third sense of per se? And besides that, where would we include statements like substance exists? Isn't that an example of a per se statement? So we'll have to return to that question later. It's a, it may be a difficult question to answer. Finally, the fourth sense of per se, and this belongs to statements, once again, in which the subject is the proper cause of the predicate. And the slaughtered animal died is an example that Aristotle gives. Dying is the proper effect of being slaughtered. It doesn't just happen that when you're slaughtered, you die, right? Here's some other examples in case you want some, some more clarity. The swimming man is wet. It does not just happen that you're wet when you swim, right? The swimming man gets wet, that's per se, huh? A body is together with its shape. A sphere casts a circular shadow. Notice that unlike the first two kinds of per se statements, the relationship between the subject and the predicate is not a whole part relationship anymore. It's more a cause-effect relationship, huh? in a different sense of cause-effect. Dying is not in the definition of slaughter, or vice versa. Swimming is not in the definition of wet, or vice versa. For this reason, it's harder to see why there's a necessary connection between the subject and the predicate in these statements. It's really hard to see why there should be a necessary connection in these cases. You wonder, like, is it possible that maybe the slaughtered animal doesn't die? Or, you know, you wonder about that. Why is it that there has to be a connection if I can't see one's in the definition of the other? Hmm? St. Thomas says the pair, in this case, signifies the mode of an extrinsic cause, either an agent cause or a final cause, but especially an agent cause, as Aristotle's example makes clear that slaughtering something and the dying is an effect of that is, is clearly an example of an agent acting and having its proper effect. Huh? All right. So at this point, I want to answer some questions which students often ask about per se statements, now that we've got a good sense of what each one is. Huh? First, are per se statements premises 
of a demonstration? Are they conclusions of a demonstration? Or are they both? Which is it? Parse one statements are always premises in a demonstration, since they're just part of the definition, like man is animal. So they're always immediate, they're always self-evident. So there's no way they can be demonstrated in the conclusion of any argument, right? Not a demonstrative argument, anyway. Hmm? On the other hand, the second and fourth sense of per se statements could be used as both. They might be a conclusion or a, pre a premise in an argument. There's no reason why they couldn't be either one. Are per se statements always self-evident? Right? Per se one statements are always self-evident. They're always immediately known, since it's self-evident that what's in the definition is predicated of the subject having that definition. But per se two, per se statements in the second sense and per se statements in the fourth sense, they don't have to be immediate or self-evident. Right? What's essential to the notion of a per se statement is not that the predicate belongs to the subject in a way that's immediate, but rather that the predicate belongs to the subject because of what the subject is, right, and what the predicate is. And so you might have an example, man is risible. That's something you could conclude and demonstrate. It's not self-evident. But risibility, the capacity to, to laugh, huh, that belongs to man because of what man is. So it's still per se, even though it's not self-evident. Can the same predicate belong to the same subject in multiple senses of a per se statement? In other words, could a statement like man is risible or some statement like that be per se in multiple senses? Huh? Um, I think the answer is yes. Take this example. A substance has accidents, right? A substance has accidents. That could be per se in the second sense, because the proper subject of an accident is substance. And therefore, substance would be in the definition of an accident, right? It'd be an instance of per se in that second sense, where the subject is in the definition of the predicate. But it's also true that substances in some way cause their accidents something like or in the mode of an efficient cause. Notice I'm saying in the mode of an efficient cause. Maybe it's not properly an agent, but something like an efficient cause. The, the substance is a cause of something extrinsic in some way, huh? the accidents. And in that sense, it would be understood as a statement in the fourth sense of per se. Huh? You might say a substance causes accidents would be a real clear way of saying that. Hmm? So another way in which you can see that is the relationship of the soul to the body. Right? The soul is both form with regard to the body and a mover in regard to the body. Right? In some way, I can say that the, the soul uh, moves the body as an agent and the soul informs the body as a form. And so in, in some way, the body is a proper subject of the soul, but also the soul is in some way an agent in relation to the body. So, All right. So far, what I've said is fairly uncontroversial and verifiable by reading the text of Aristotle. But there are some problems which remain that I want to address as the final part of this lecture. And the answers to these problems are not clearly found in Aristotle or in St. Thomas, to my knowledge. I mentioned before, when treating the third sense of per se, that it seems out of place. Right? It's not a sense in which a statement is said to be per se. And I want to argue dialectically on both sides of the question to see more clearly why Aristotle sets down the third sense of per se. What's it doing here? How is it helpful? Okay. Could this third sense of per se implicitly be the sense of per se belonging to statements asserting the existence of things, like the statement, substance exists, or nature exists? Based on our experience, we tend to think statements like these are necessary statements. So in principle, they should be classifiable in one of the senses of per se statements. Right? They, or do we have to find another sense that, that Aristotle doesn't give? Right? But, um, but when I hear statements like that, I say, gee, that's an awful lot like what Aristotle says in the third sense. You know, things exist through themselves. You know, what is walking exists through itself. Boy, that sure sounds like that kind of a statement, doesn't it? 
So maybe that third sense of per se really is a hidden or implicit way of saying statements like substance exists or nature exists or man exists. Well, what's another possibility? Are statements like nature exists and substance exists examples of per se statements in the first sense? Right? Existence stands to substance in a way similar to the way substance stands to animal. When I say that an animal is a substance, substance is in the definition of animal. When I say a substance exists, it seems like existence is somehow in the definition of substance. Huh? Substance is what exists through itself or something like that. So it seems like existence there would seem to signify, um, when I say substance exists, it seems to be a, an instance of the first sense of per se statement. However, we should distinguish between two possible meanings of the statement substance exists. On the one hand, it could mean the notion of existence is included in the notion of substance, which would be something like a nominal definition. In this case, it would be a per se one statement, a statement in that first sense. But I don't think that's what we normally mean when we say that substance exists. Rather, we're asserting real existence outside the mind and apart from our concepts. But if this kind of existence were in the definition of anything, it would seem to follow that it would be impossible for such a thing not to be. And this is true only of the first being, which is God. Only God has existence in his definition, so to speak, right, in his essence. Therefore, the statement, substance exists, taking its natural sense, cannot seem to be a per se one statement, that first sense of per se. Okay? What about the second sense of per se? Could statements like substance exists be per se in the second sense? It's easy to see that that can't be the case. And the reason is no particular kind of existing thing can be the very definition of existence. Right? If I say you know, that, that existence is my predicate, and now some subject is in the very definition of existence, right? that's really problematic. It's obvious that you don't get, there's no such thing as some subject that has to be the very subject of existence, unless maybe you're talking about God again, right, in some way. Could statements like substance exists be statements in the fourth sense of per se? This would seem to require that existence belongs to a subject as an effect to its proper or immediate cause. But no particular substance could be the cause of being itself. So it seems that statements like substance exists cannot be statements in the fourth sense of per se either. Right? So if statements like substance exists are per se, and yet they don't seem to be per se in any of the other senses enumerated by Aristotle, it seems to follow that there should be another sense of per se statement. And maybe this is what Aristotle is giving us implicitly in the third sense of per se. You might reason that way, huh? You're kind of doing a process of elimination. But on the other hand, the language of Aristotle is unequivocal. This sense is a sense about what is not said. He's very clear about that. This is something not said. And in the statement, substance exists, existence is said of substance. Aristotle is not talking about the relationship of a subject to a predicate at all, but the existence of a thing in itself when he's talking about this third sense of per se. So how do we untie this knot? I think what Aristotle is doing is he's using a kind of monoduxio. Monoduxio is that kind of fancy Latin word for leading by the hand. He's trying to lead you from one thing to another through something that serves as a kind of bridge. And he's trying to lead us from the second sense of per se to the fourth sense through a sense of per se which is not a kind of statement but rather a kind of being. Namely, through the fact that substances are the kind of being which exists through themselves. In the fourth sense of per se, it's difficult to see that the predicate belongs to the subject through the subject itself. Does dying really belong to slaughtered animal through slaughtered animal itself? Death is not in the definition of slaughter, nor is slaughter in the definition of death. So how can anyone expect us to see that dying goes together with slaughtered per se? Hmm? Hume and Kant seem to share this problem, by the way. They, they had the same kind of issue. When you get to Hume and you get to Kant, and junior and senior year. I guess, I don't know if you read content senior year or junior year? Junior year. So junior year, you'll get these problems in spades, huh? Well, in steps this other meaning of per se. Substance is per se. Like the first two senses of per se, where the predicate belongs to the subject not through something other than the subject, the third sense of per se has nothing other than a subject. It's an ultimate subject. But like the fourth sense of per se, 
The third sense of per se does not involve a part-to-whole relationship, where the predicate and the subject are in one another the way a part is in a whole. So now the mind can see that not every sense of per se involves a hold-apart relationship. Once Aristotle brings in that third sense, you're like, that's not a hold-apart relationship anymore. It's not a definition-to-thing-defined relationship anymore. And so now we can better understand how a predicate, which is not related to its subject as a part to a whole, can still belong to the subject per se. Um, Aristotle, in his physics, he, he mentions the eight chief sense of the word in. Huh? The eight chief senses of the word in. And the first senses of the word in are all about how parts are in holes and you know, one thing's in another the way it's in a subject and things like that. But the last senses of in involve extrinsic causes. Right? Um, it's not easy to see how an effect can be in its agent or final cause. Right? When he says, I left my heart in San Francisco. Right? What am I saying there? Right? I'm saying that that somehow that San Francisco is my good or something like that, and, and my heart is somehow in San Francisco. San Francisco is something outside of me, right? So it's not really easy to see how something which is an extrinsic cause can still be a reason why one thing is in another. Does that make sense? So something like that is happening with regard to the fourth sense of per se statements. It's just hard to see that the predicate is in the subject that way. But this still leaves us with the problem of statements like substance exists. While the third sense of per se is not a kind of per se statement, nevertheless, a statement can be made about the existence of substance. And I think that statement is an instance of the fourth sense of per se. That's my th a theory. I had a, a discussion with uh, Mike Agros earlier today about this. So this might come out in the Q&A later. I don't know. But we had some back and forth about that. And, and um, maybe it's better to say that there might be multiple ways in which that um, that statement, substance exists, it might be understood to be per se in multiple senses. We'll see. If this is a case, it further bolsters the claim that the third sense of per se is a kind of bridge between the second and fourth senses. So how can we see that the statement substance exists is per se in the fourth sense? When we make the assertion that substance exists, we don't mean this particular substance exists as a matter of sense experience. For that would not be a universal statement. It wouldn't be held by the mind, it'd be held by the senses, right? And then obviously it couldn't be necessary. This is a universal statement known in the understanding, and what we mean is something like, such a thing as substance exists, right? And I'm saying that. And while existence taken universally, existence itself, is not a proper effective substance, the way I took it in the objection, Nevertheless, the proper kind of existence belonging to substance is a proper effect of the principles of substance being present, namely, when the matter and form pertaining to the essence are present. Thus, St. Thomas will define essence as that in which and through which a thing exists. Huh? Existence in some way as an effect. So it's true to say that the kind of existence proper to substance is a proper effect of substance in the mode of an efficient cause, it seems. And the same can be said of more limited subjects, such as when we assert that animal exists or man exists. So let's return now to examine the necessity of, for, of the fourth sense of per se. Can we really see the necessity of statements in this sense? Mary, many very intelligent thinkers have denied that the kind of statement that Aristotle describes in this fourth sense of per se are truly necessary statements. Hume, for example, argued that when one moving object strikes another, there's only a constant conjunction by which we associate the motion of the body which is struck as caused by the motion of the body which strikes it. The example of two pool balls or something hitting each other, huh? constant conjunction. He argues that we can't know with necessity that the first mover moves the thing it contacts. Hume chooses that example because it's hard to see the necessity there. But what if we could find examples of per se statements in the fourth sense for which the necessity is obvious? Let's take a couple examples. A thing cannot be and not be. The famous principle about contradiction. Huh? The whole is greater than its part. Are either of these examples of statements that are per se in the first or the second sense? I don't think so. 
In neither case is a predicate contained in the definition of the subject or vice versa. Rather, they're statements in which the predicate follows from the subject as an immediate consequence of what the subject is. So if you had to put them in one of these senses of per se, I think you put them in the fourth sense of per se. And yet their necessity is absolutely evident. The same thing cannot be and not be. It's the most evident principle of all. Huh? A whole is greater than its part. How, how could you, see, you know, fail to see that? So there you have examples of statements that are absolutely clearly necessary, and yet they don't belong to the first two senses. They seem to belong to the fourth sense of per se. So for the most part, the difficulty with seeing the necessity of a statement in the fourth sense of per se is not actually seeing that they're necessary. I don't think most people, when you ask them, do you think slaughtered animals have to die? I think they say yes. Do you think swimming men have to get wet? Yes, I think they do. Right? It's not that you have trouble seeing that they're necessary, but how or why they're necessary. That's the hard part. And we often confuse those questions. If I have one little piece of advice for you students as you go on, please realize that those are two different questions, whether something is and why or how it is. Right? You, you may have no idea why something is, but be absolutely certain that it is. Right? Don't fall into that trap. We have a, there are a lot of thinkers that we read in this program that, that make that mistake. Huh? Again, this is not surprising since this is the last sense of per se statement. The fact that it's not surprising that it's hard to see why the predicate belongs to the subject necessarily in the fourth sense of per se. It's related in the last sense of in, the way an effect is in its extrinsic cause. What is extrinsic seems to be that last, the last thing you would call in something. What is not part of what it is of a thing is the last thing you would expect belongs to that thing through itself. Huh? So maybe that's why it's hard to see. Finally, I want to return to an aspect of tool which I did not yet point out. Every tool needs to have a part which our natural abilities can immediately touch or grasp contact. The handle on a knife, the trigger on a gun. They need to be immediately in contact with the ability of the hand to grasp. Otherwise, we could never use it. And logic is no different. It needs to have tools which can be immediately grasped by some natural ability of reason. And per se statements have exactly that quality. They are the handles which reason uses to grasp truth and knowledge. The necessity of statements in the first two senses of per se can be immediately grasped by the mind's ability to see the necessary relationship of a whole and its part of a definition to the thing defined. The necessity of a statement in the fourth sense of per se can be immediately grasped by the mind's natural ability to discern a necessary relationship between a cause and its proper effect, especially the immediate cause of a thing. So I think there's actually a different ability of reason by which we see the necessity of statements in that fourth sense of per se. It's related to the natural ability to perceive the order between a cause and its effect. Right? This comes up often in the Socratic um, dialogues, doesn't it? Right? Is a thing good because we want it, or do we want it because it's good? Right? Is something good because, uh, is something pious because uh, the gods desire it, or the gods desire it because it's pious, or something like that? Huh? Is reason the cause of risibility, or is risibility the cause of reason? Just as we see with necessity and have a natural capacity to see the order of cause and effect, so too we see with necessity that one thing is the cause and the other its effect. So without per se statements, we will never be able to grasp the truth firmly in such a way to possess certain knowledge. We'll never have a handle on truth. Socrates once said in the Meno that true opinions, for as long a time as they should stay put, are a fine thing and accomplish all kinds of good things. Yet much of the time they're not willing to stay put, but they run away out of the human soul so that they, are not, they are not worth much until someone should tether them with causes by reasoning. Aristotle has fashioned tools by which we can tether these truths permanently to our soul. And just as an artisan must look not only to the end or purpose of a tool, but also the ability which it proportions to that end, so Aristotle, the master craftsman, has fashioned tools perfectly suitable to our natural abilities and to the end at which they aim. 
These tools are per se statements. These statements, together with our natural abilities, are the roots which keep our knowledge firmly tethered to experience and make our knowledge really to be knowledge. Thank you.